expect more. I think that's what the people in the town of Nazareth were doing when they heard this, that their hometown boy was coming back. I looked up, Nazareth was approximately, we think about 200 in population. That's a pretty small town. And I was trying to find a town in Texas near here that had 200 inhabitants. And I couldn't find one. All the small towns I've ever heard of, and granted I'm from Vermont, so I don't know them all, were much larger than 200. And I actually had to search for towns under 200 in Texas on the internet to get them. But I'd never heard of any of these towns. I don't know if you, you may have also. But you try it when you get home, and I think you'll find it's not as easy as you think it is. So this is a really, really small town, a town so small it's really not on any radar. It was also really remote. It was out in the wilderness. It was just a tiny speck in all of Galilee. It was the type of town where everyone had to know each other. There were no secrets. You couldn't have any secrets. And everybody was constantly in each other's business. So at the first, when Jesus took off for the wilderness and he was gone for so long, you can bet that there was a buzz about that. Where did he go? What was he doing? And then they heard he was returning. One of their own was coming home after a long absence. And they'd also heard just unbelievable stories about what had happened when he was gone. They heard rumors like he went out into the wilderness by himself on a solo hike for 40 days. And when he came back, instead of being tired and hungry, he was enervated and energized and excited more confident than when he'd gone out before. And they knew that he joined a group with his cousin John that were down by the Jordan River that were going through a cleansing process. And he himself did that as well. And then there was a voice that nobody could explain coming from the heavens saying, this is my child and in him I am well pleased. It was a miracle nobody had ever seen before. And there were other rumors of miracles that he had been doing, that he'd been healing people around Galilee, people who were physically hurt and people who had mental illness as well. Their hometown boy, the carpenter's son, remember Joseph, his son was doing these miracles. So the people of Nazareth hear he's coming back and they are excited. If he's doing all that out in Galilee, what is he going to do here for us, his hometown people? Maybe he'll heal somebody who can't walk. Maybe he'll cast demons out of somebody else. Maybe he'll even raise someone from the dead. They knew from the stories that all this was possible with him. They just didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't, they didn't know what he would do for them. They, they were thinking, what is he going to do for me? And the crowds turned out because they had great expectations. They expected more. More than they had seen, more than they had heard, more than they'd ever experienced. And you can bet the synagogue was packed that all 200 inhabitants of the little town of Nazareth was there, were there waiting. And they probably invited some friends and relatives from out of town as well. I mean, who wouldn't want to see what this guy was going to do in his hometown? So Jesus enters the crowded room 
and he walks over to where the scrolls are and they give him the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolls it looking for just the verses he wants. And he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. And then he carefully returns the scroll and sits down. And there's a long pause while everybody looks at him. And he says, today the scripture's been fulfilled. Now, often when we talk about this scripture, I'll ask people, so what happened next? What, what did the people do when they heard Jesus say this? And people usually remember that they went and threw Jesus off a cliff. Everybody remembers the end of this story. But take a look at what they did first. It should be here on the screen. This is the, the verse immediately following our reading. All spoke well of him <clears throat> and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. We forget that part, that at first they're happy because they think we're the poor, we're the oppressed, we're the ones Jesus is here to help. But the story doesn't quite end there, and we all know that we're going to get to the cliff throwing eventually. So what happened? What happened? So they were amazed because Jesus spoke these gracious words. <clears throat> but how do we get from this sort of blissful moment to that cliff-throwing moment. Well, Pastor Lynn and I are in the middle of a series called Great Expectations, where we're, we're exploring the vows that all of you take when you join the Methodist Church. And today we're exploring the vow of prayer and how you promise to pray as a member of the United Methodist Church. And it's pretty common when people first join a church or come into their Christian faith that their prayer focus is just what Jeff said. It's on us. It's a lot on us. And they're focused here with their thumb. And those are really good and necessary prayers. In fact, that's why our prayer group meets weekly to pray on behalf of the friends and the family members of this community. And let me tell you, that group prays deeply and boldly every single week. That group has great expectations for the results of their prayers. That group expects more. And they literally pray out loud every week for miracles to happen, every single week. But at some point in our Christian journey, as Jeff was talking about, our prayers start moving away from ourselves and onto other people. Helen Heston is a 21-year-old student at UT, and we asked her a lot about these different vows in the Methodist Church and what she thinks uh, about them. And we're going to hear from her in just a second here. Her faith is very deep and her plan is to enter ministry at some point. So she's really explored a lot of these questions herself. So here is her take on this issue. I wrote mostly about being challenged, feeling like there was this younger generation of people that wanted to be engaged by their church community that had the energy, had the capacity, and had the passion for it, um, but sometimes were stuck or felt stuck in like more complacent community and um, feeling like I wasn't at home in a church unless I was being challenged in what I either believed or did or thought or like the way I connected relationally with the people around me was being challenged and uh, I think 
that's where a lot of my growth has come from. Um, I have distinct memories of conversations and feeling like, wow, this is totally making me question everything that I thought about maybe what I did before or how I conceptualized myself or my relationships with other people. And that's where I've seen the most development in my faith and um, wanting more of that. And especially for um, people my age. Challenge me, Helen said. Challenge my beliefs, my thoughts, my actions, and my faith. I'm wondering if the people of Nazareth were asking Jesus to challenge them. We already know how the scene ends. It ends when they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. But again, we ask, what gets them there? Well, Jesus tells a couple of stories, and we have the scripture up here if you want to peruse it a little bit, but I'm going to summarize it too. He tells two very familiar stories. He tells the story of the prophet Elijah and the widow who lives in Sidon. And he emphasizes that Elijah had a, his choice of widows in his own land, in Israel. But he doesn't stay there. He goes outside of Israel. And then following up with the, the prophet Elisha, who heals a leper. And again, there were plenty of lepers in Israel that Elisha could have healed. But instead, he goes to Syria, and he heals a Syrian leper. And there it is. That's where they start to throw Jesus off a cliff. In Nazareth, Jesus had a home field advantage. But I don't think his hometown was ready to hear this message. They weren't ready to hear how important it was to begin moving your mission, your ministry, your prayer, outside of your circle and your community. In Nazareth, the people expected more of Jesus, but he had turned it around and said, I expect more of you. Jesus wanted his people to look beyond that little town of 200 to see the bigger needs of the world. But when you're in a small town of 200, that can be really, really hard. It's your whole world. But it also can be really freeing to release your prayers, whomever they're for, into the hands of somebody who can carry them, into the hands of the only being who can carry them, into the hands of God. It leaves you the space to pray for the needs that are beyond your own. When I was a lot younger, there was an author named Jan Karen who started to write a series of books called the Mitford series about a priest named Father Tim Cavanaugh. And I took something from his ministry when I read those. Actually, she's still writing them. I just found out she produced one in 2015. I haven't kept, kept up though. But her character, this priest, would receive all sorts of prayer requests and prayer requests that were desperate and often very sad and tragic, and some that really required a miracle. But at the end of every prayer he lifted to God, he would end the prayer with, thy will be done. He knew that in the end, it was God's will that would be done anyway, not his own. So by surrendering it at the beginning, it brought him the peace to keep going through his life. So think about it. Think about the effect of adding those four words onto the end of every prayer you can think of. God, please heal me. Thy will be done. God, please help my spouse find a job. 
thy will be done. God, please bring peace to the world. Thy will be done. Those words are equal parts liberating, challenging, and terrifying all at the same time. But I really find them especially liberating. When you put your, hand, your prayers in the hands of the only one who can hold them, it can only bring a sense of peace. So just as Helen suggested this morning, I'm going to challenge all of you. I'm going to end this sermon with a time of silence and invite you to lift a prayer to God. Whatever's on your heart this morning. It might be a prayer for yourself, for your mom, for someone in this room, for someone across the country, or for the world. What's ever on your heart, I invite you to pray it. And we'll end this time of prayer, and I will say the words, and all the people say, and I'm going to invite you to say, thy will be done. So let's practice that one time. All the people say, thy will be done. Good, excellent. So let's go to God in prayer. And let the people say, I will be done. Amen.